welcome you to come back and just find your seats. Thank you so much. Feels really empty up here now that it's just me. <laughs> There's a great, uh, great team with us this week. Well, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Thank you. Now, am I alone on this, or did Thanksgiving sneak up on anybody else this year? Yeah? Yeah, I, I, was, I was curious why that happened, and I, so I had to look into it a little bit, because that's how my, how my brain works. And I thought a number of people were taken off guard by, by how quickly it seemed to appear in October this year. Well, what it is, actually, is that, like a lot of holidays that are on a specific day of the month, like the Christmas on the 25th of December kind of thing, or other holidays that are based upon a certain number of Sundays in a month, like Easter Sunday and Mother's Day and Father's Day, Thanksgiving falls on a particular Monday. So even though we celebrate Sunday, it actually falls on a particular Monday. And this is the first Sunday of October, but the second Monday of October. So here we are on Thanksgiving Day weekend. It's been that way since 1957 here in Canada when the Governor General made this, I thought was a beautiful declaration, that this second Monday of each October would be a day of general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the bountiful harvest of which he has blessed Canada with so much of. Can we agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. Because we have so much to be thankful for, not only the fact that we live in this incredible country of Canada, but also that we live in Edmonton, where the grass is greener than it is in Calgary, right? <laughs> where it's awfully white. I'm sorry if you're visiting us from Calgary, but truth is truth. So, and also, we have this great, uh, this great country, this great city we live in, wonderful families, wonderful church family to be a part of. There's much for us to be thankful for this week. And so I want to encourage you. I imagine most, if not all of us, are going to spend some time either today or tomorrow gathered around a large table with friends and family enjoying a Thanksgiving Day meal. And so I want to encourage you that between those mouthfuls of turkey and stuffing and potatoes and cranberries and pumpkin pie and then before the nap in the middle there, that you ask yourselves, are you looking for something to talk about between bites or between meals? What are you thankful for? And share that with those that you're gathered with today. So I want to give my family a heads up that just might be happening later this afternoon. So you got some time to think about that <laughs> before the questions ask around the table. Now, you can't say sort of the easy cop-out is, well, I'm, I'm thankful that mom did all the cooking. <laughs> because if you say that, you'll probably end up doing all the dishes. <laughs> if that's your answer. So be a little more creative than that. You know, earlier this week, I was asking around a little bit about what people are thankful for today in this particular time of season, looking back upon the year that was. And, and of course, you know, I asked, I asked Pastor Ryan, and so we're not surprised when he was thankful for the Oilers, and he was thankful for McDavid and the great season they're going to have, which I thought was more of a prayer than a Thanksgiving kind of thing. I asked Pastor Luke, Pastor Luke, what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving? He didn't answer the question. Instead, he proceeded to give me a lecture on how Thanksgiving actually takes place at the end of November and that it's not supposed to fall in October. But I'm sure there are things he is thankful for in October yet as well. As I continue to ask, a lot of people were thankful for things like friends and family that have expressed love and care and comfort to them during difficult times. Uh, people were thankful for that first cup of coffee in the morning, especially at this time of year where you can, if you get up early enough, you can have that coffee while the sun rises and you can enjoy a moment such as that. A few people had stories of recovery. 
of health situations that they had endured in this past year or, or even a little bit prior to this year, but they're still in an attitude of gratitude. They're still thankful for the recovery that happened from health. Others from uh, recovery from addictions that had plagued them and, and led them to unhealthy lifestyles. And these people were expressing thankfulness for the hope and for the freedom that they're now experiencing. One friend of mine was thankful simply that he is still alive. Because I remember a couple years ago when I had to announce to a church family that he had been hit by a car and had to be revived in the back of an ambulance. Um, and it was a very difficult time for him and his family. But there's a silver lining sometimes that go through moments like that. Because through the process of learning, uh, through the process of doing the tests upon him, they learned that he actually had cancer, which they wouldn't have discovered if they hadn't done the tests in, in light of the injuries he suffered in that car accident. And so he's thankful for God's blessings and for just being alive still after all that he's gone through. And then, of course, there are curious things that have stories behind them. Why would you be thankful for Band-Aids? But somebody was. There's a story behind that. Why would you be thankful for mousetraps? For the new Doctor Who series that's coming out, which I don't know. Apparently, it's supposed to be pretty good, though. And then there are a few people who are just thankful for pizza. And <laughs> I think we can understand that. But regardless of what you're thankful for today, I know that we all want to pause for a moment and just give thanks and glory to God, who is the giver of all good things that we have. Now, Thanksgiving is a time of season where we're kind of primed for that attitude, for that type of reflection upon what we're thankful for. But during the rest of the year, it's not always as easy, is it? Like sometimes we come to these seasons where it's not as easy to be as thankful. Think about your own life or even just sort of human nature in general. I think it's true that, that our feelings that we have at some moments, the, the situations we find ourselves in some moments, actually determine how we evaluate, how we view the world around us and how our lives are going. If things are going good, then it's easy to see God's blessings everywhere we look. You know, our, our guy gets elected, our team wins the game, our kids are behaving, church is structured just the way I want it to, Woohoo! But alternatively, when things are going a little tougher, when there's hard times in life and our minds have a hard time to see the positives that exist in the world around us. You know, our guy didn't get elected. Our team lost. The bill was bigger than we expected it to be. The kids are out of control. The, the sermon wasn't what I wanted. The music was different than I thought. And instead of the woohoo, it turns into a, a boohoo in the end. You see, the extent to which our desires and our plans are fulfilled quite often has a very strong influence upon how we view and interpret the world around us and those that we're in relationship with. We've probably all experienced this to some degree. If you were to pause and look back and think about different situations, you could probably see a connection between those things. And now for people of faith, people who believe that God is in control of all things, we can apply that principle as well. And all of a sudden, based upon our feelings and our situations, we also then begin to interpret our view of who he is and how we view him. And when this happens, we become susceptible to our relationship with God being defined by the life from God type of posture. Where life is hard, our prayers aren't answered the way we wanted them to. We're not feeling his presence the way that we have in the past. We're not having those mountaintop moments with him. And all of a sudden, we start to question, you know, is God really good? Is, is God really there? You see, when the blessings seem to start drying up in our lives, there can, for some people, be this tendency to so, too, allow their trust in him, their, their relationship with him to start drying up a little bit, too. 
And the danger of this is if that's the direction, the path we start walking down, then we risk interpreting our relationship with God. We risk having our view of God being defined by his usefulness to us. That's a difficult, dangerous position to be. Now, this was studied by, by a number of people. One particular person I came across is a, a, a researcher by the name of Christian Smith, who was a sociologist at the University of Northern Carolina, and he was looking at how people view God based upon their situations and in, in current trends in society. And in particular, he was studying young adults and youth and how they related to God and how they viewed God. And, and to kind of cut to the chase of all of his research, he said there are two primary definitions of, that, that are very prominent in how people of faith in that generation, view God. Number one, they referred to him as the divine butler, where God exists to help them to achieve and to receive what their desires are. That's God's role in their relationship with him. The other definition was a cosmic therapist, where God exists to help them through their problems. If I have a problem, if I have a challenge, part of God's job is to help me get through that problem. A, a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. And so, this is revealing again of this human tendency we have where our own happiness and our own personal fulfillment goes a long way in understanding and defining how we view God and how we see our relationship with him. Now, you might wonder, well, how did this happen? What, what was the cause of this? And, and there were two primary causes. One was the consumerist world in which we currently find ourselves living where we are inundated with advertising all day. You may not know this because a lot of us are, are kind of numb to it nowadays, but as many as 3,500 advertisements per day come across your eyes and your ears per person. 3,500 a day. And there's this industry that manufactures needs and desires, and also in today's culture, it's an instant culture where I see it, I need it, I want it, I get it. And this culture is influencing also not just how we relate to one another, but also how we relate and understand God. That was one of the first primary causes. A second primary cause was that this was the same view that these kids' parents held. And so they came by it honestly. And so we're not just picking on the youth and young adults. It actually was their parents that held the same views and was influencing how these kids grew up to understand God. Now it begs the question, is it possible to be thankful even when our desires are not fulfilled? Is it possible to be thankful even when the problems still remain? Now, a person who relates to God through this life from God posture would have a hard time saying yes to those questions. That would be a very difficult thing for them to accept. Because essentially, from that mind frame, from that type of relationship, God's value is determined by the person's level of contentment. Now, even just saying those words, I think we would agree that even, even just hearing those words, we know there's a problem in that phrase somewhere. That God's value should not be limited simply or defined simply by our level of contentment. God must have more value than that. Even just by the definition of what it means for him to be God, there must be more value than just what he gives. But like all of the postures that we are looking at throughout this sermon series, there is some value. There is some merit to this part of the posture. Because when it comes to our life from God, as we're going to unpack for you today, there's the good, there's the bad, and there's the ugly when we look at this life from God posture. So what's the good? Well, the good is this, is that it's not wrong to want to be blessed by God. There's nothing wrong with that. And God delights in blessing his children. 
There's various passages throughout Scripture who reveal this truth to us, that God cares about you. God cares about you and he knows your desires and he invites you to bring those to him. We see that throughout Scripture. One of the best verses I think I come across that talks about this is in James 1.17 where it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. You see, they're saying that God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. And the, and the sun and the stars, these heavenly lights that give light to the earth, so too these good blessings, these gifts that come down from the Father bring light to our lives. That God is the creator and the source of all these things and he can lighten our lives through his desire and ability to bring these things to us. But also, therefore, he's not a distant God. He's not, he's not an impersonal father, but he is one who welcomes us who knows us, who wants us to engage in relationship with him. Jesus explained this to his followers where after he taught them how to pray to their heavenly father in Luke chapter 11, he then followed up by saying that we should therefore ask him for the things that we need. We should bring these things before him. And he explained it to them this way. He says, if you fathers, any of us here who are fathers, any of us here who are mothers, if, you ask, if your son asks you for a fish, which one of you would give him a snake instead? Of all of you parents out there, if, if your child came to you and asked you for an egg, would you instead give them a scorpion? No, obviously wouldn't. And so Jesus continues the thought by going, so then if you who are human, if you who are fallen and limited in your understanding and ability to express goodness, if you know that, how much more so your Father in heaven? How much more so your Father in heaven who loves you? Now, when Nadine and I first got married, we didn't have a whole lot. Uh, Nadine was working at Dairy Queen as a cake decorator at the time. I was working in a warehouse for just a smidge above minimum wage. We were making it. We were getting by. But there was not any extra at all. And I remember this one time when Christmas was coming around. And, and sort of the, the father heart and, and, the, and the husband in me just wanted to provide gifts. Wanted to provide a nice Christmas for my family. You probably appreciate that feeling that we have starting around this time of year each time. But we didn't have enough to do it. And so I tried to pick up some extra hours at work. But that wasn't enough. And, and, and Kalina and, and Nadine never said anything. that You know, we want this, we need this. But, but I, I knew. And I had a desire to provide it for them. And so I had, a, I had an idea. You see, before I met them, when I had a little more disposable income, before we get married, I went and bought myself a stereo for my car. It was one of those stereos you hear it from a few blocks away. Boom, boom, boom. I loved that stereo. Well, so did my boss's son. Every day I drove up to work, he was like, man, I love your stereo. And so I thought, you know, I could convince my boss to buy that stereo for his son for Christmas, and then I'd have enough money to go buy the presents that I need. And so I did. I convinced my boss to buy my stereo out of my vehicle to put into his son's vehicle so that I had money to go buy these gifts and to provide this Christmas that I wanted. And that's what happened. And I drove to work in silence until I got to work, and I heard my boss's son pulling up, boom, boom, boom. Boom, this constant reminder of where my stereo was. But here's the thing, I loved that stereo, but I loved my family more. And I wanted to give them these gifts. These, I, I, I knew that feeling of being a husband and a father, wanting to deliver and what was desired most by those that I cared for. 
Now, my example probably makes some sense to you, but it pales in comparison to how much your Heavenly Father loves you. It pales in comparison to how much He wants to bless you. You see, this isn't the problem with the life from God posture. This isn't the problem. It's not wrong to bring our things before God. It's not wrong to desire things from Him. He desires to know about those things and to bless us. That's not the problem. That's the good. But what's the bad? Well, the bad is when the gifts that we receive, when the prayers that we want answered become the entirety of the relationship. When that simply becomes the sum total of the entire relationship. Now, it's not that we want bad things quite often. Like even the simple prayers we throw up sometimes, we're probably not serious when, uh, when we pray for things like we want, we want Johnny to fail the test so we can have the best grade this time. When we pray that we want the other team star player to get hurt so that our team wins. When we pray that we want our coworker to get fired because nobody likes Duncan anyways, right? We don't, we don't really mean these things, or maybe if you do, then that's a different problem. That's a different sermon for another day, and maybe we'll cover that one at that point. But see, the problem is that when the value of the gift is higher than the gift giver, and when that happens, we've actually entered into a form of idolatry. When the gift has more value than the gift giver, we've entered into idolatry. Remember the Ten Commandments. The second of the Ten Commandments was this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, when we think about other gods and idolatry, quite often we would then think, okay, well, there's a, yeah, the golden calf of, of the Israelites in the desert, an idol, another god. We would think about... Uh, stone idols that you find in, in some people's homes or even in restaurants you see them at times, uh, of other faiths where they worship other gods. That's true. That's all part of it. But a fuller understanding of what idolatry is, is, is anything, any image, any person, any desire we have that is over our value of God. You see, any time we ask God to take a second seat to something else in our lives, we've entered into that realm of idolatry. Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods, explains it this way. He says, idolatry is this, when good things become ultimate things. When good things become ultimate things. Now, quite often, the good things in our lives that are not bad in and of themselves. It's not wrong to want to have a good career. It's not wrong to want to have healthy relationships, to have nice possessions, even to, to serve powerfully and often within the church. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves unless they begin to have a higher value. Unless they begin to have more importance than God himself. You see, at that moment, we've crossed a line. And also, within the Christian faith, there's this little thing called syncretism. Where if we're practicing that, and if we believe that, and yet we also hold on to a belief in God, where God's value is determined by what comes from God, then we've also turned God into a cosmic bending machine. Where his usefulness is determined by his ability to provide what I need. His usefulness exists to fulfill my cravings. And at that point, we've entered into idolatry because the created has become more valuable than the creator. That's the bad. So we've got the good. We've got the bad. What's the ugly? Well, the ugly is an extreme form of the life from God posture, something that you may have heard of before called the prosperity gospel. You heard of that before, the prosperity gospel? 
it, it, it's an extreme form of this life from God posture. You may have heard it referred to as the, the health and wealth gospel, the, the name it and claim it, the blab it and grab it. There, there's different names that go around for, for this view. And it's basically a belief that financially and phys- your financial and physical well-being has always been God's will for his people. And that the Bible is essentially a contract where if you live a life of faith, if you are positive in your attitudes and positive in your comments and positive in how you live your life, and if you make donations and give towards these sorts of things, that you will then, God is obligated to increase your material wealth and provide physical health. It sees the Bible as a contract. That, that's the message of Scripture. And what ends up happening is there are stories of those who gave boldly, who served with long, hard hours, who, who lived those bold lives and demanded what they should deserve or earn within the world in company and relationships and in the church, and they received it. And these examples get lifted up as, see, it works. I remember watching TV once, and, and sometimes you find these type of people on, on the television. I remember watching one pastor who has a large church in the States that, that promotes this type of theology, and he was talking about when he first started out, him and his wife were, were, were brand new to the ministry, and and they didn't have two pennies to rub together, but they had big hopes and big dreams and big plans. And so they went to this giant show home in a neighborhood, and they walked through, and they loved it. Surprise, surprise. They loved it, and they got a copy of the, of the prints of the home. And they took those, and they put them in their Bible, and they said, God, we deserve this. And they prayed, and they believed. And wouldn't you know what? God gave them that show home one day. And so there's stories like this get, get elevated to show that there's evidence and proof that that's an appropriate theology to hold. But there's a problem. How does that relate to the faithful young family who lives in poverty? Is their faith any less than the one who received? How does that view work in a third world country where there is no wealth or only the top of the country have anything that would look like wealth. And yet there are faithful thousands among the third world country. How does that theology translate to the regions of our world where people are persecuted daily for having their faith? Where the fact of standing up and saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Messiah, making a statement such as that, you would lose your family, your business, your wealth. You would lose all of that for making that statement. How do you reconcile those things? is one of the biggest challenges that we have. You see, the health and wealth idea is dangerous because it's in conflict with so many of Jesus' teachings. It's in conflict with them. For example, Jesus summed up his biggest challenge we have to it when he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? In that same breath, Jesus offered a very clear teaching to those who followed him, and he said that if you will be my follower, you must deny yourselves. You must give up top spot for your desires, for your will, and substitute them with those of the Lord. That that needs to be first place in your life. And then he said, and daily we must take up our crosses. And, and it doesn't take much research to learn that a cross is not an instrument of health and wealth. It is an instrument of death and being laid naked and bare before the world. Now instead of this, I ask you to consider the example of the Apostle Paul, who had a different definition of prosperity. And he said in Philippians 4, when he said, I know what it is to be in need. 
I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or if I'm hungry, if I'm living in plenty or if I'm in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, it's easy to say a phrase like that. It's easy to say those verses when life is going well, when we're among friends, when things are going good, when we have plates full of food and, and our own beds to sleep in and the freedom of a nation that we live in. It's easy to look at those words and go, yeah, no, I know contentment. But as Paul writes these words, that wasn't his situation. He writes these words when things are not going well. He writes them while he's sitting in a prison, while he's chained to a guard and has his freedom severely limited and access to things like, like friends, hospitality, food, sleep, rest, freedoms are completely restrained. He still writes these words and says, I have contentment in all things. You see, when contentment is based upon circumstances and the accolades of the world, it will never fully be grasped. When we base it upon accolades and circumstances of the world, it's never fully grasped. Because when there's this something that we seek, and then we finally achieve it, I, I've learned this in my own life so much, I'm sure you can relate to this. When you, when, you, when you want something, but then you achieve it, when you get to that peak, when you get to that rung of the ladder, you discover there's another one. And when you get to that one, there's another one. And you get to that one, there's another one. You see, success and contentment is elusive if we're looking to the things of this world. It will continually elude us. It will never fully be grasped. Back in the early 1900s, one of the richest men in the world, you probably heard of his name, John Rockefeller. He was the first billionaire in the United States back in the early 1900s. Following inflation and things like that up to today, he would still be considered the richest man ever based upon a billion dollars, 1900, to what that looks like today. He was being interviewed by a, a reporter who said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more was his answer. The richest man who probably ever lived had the attitude of just a little bit more. You see, it's, it's never fully achieved. Paul knew that success and contentment will not be found in circumstances. It will not be found in the gifts of this world. Paul knew in this passage, he's saying, if you want that success, if you want contentment that comes with that, it is only found in a relationship made possible with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Because that can never be taken away. And see, that is where the life from God posture fails us, but the life with God fulfills us. It's not about what we receive. It's about who we receive it from. Jesus once told a story that vividly illustrates this force. This, this idea of the, of the life from God versus the life with God posture. It's a familiar story. I'm sure you've, you've heard it. You've probably read it at some point in your lives. It's found in Luke chapter 11. Sorry, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. It, it's the parable of the lost son. And it shows in this vivid parable the, the nature of the religious, uh, sorry, the nature of the rebellious sense of our humanity versus the loving character of God. To really refresh you of the story. It's a story of a man who had two sons. And the younger son comes to him one day and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, in saying this, he's basically saying, Father, you know that inheritance that I have coming to me when you're dead? Well, I don't really want to wait for you to die. I just would rather have it now. Which, as you can imagine, 
is, is, is deeply disrespectful. Would have brought incredible shame to the entire family. And we don't know the reason that the son did this. We're, we're not told the specific reason. Maybe it was the restraints that he felt when he was at home. Maybe he didn't like being under the authority of dad anymore. Maybe it was he just felt confined by the requirements of the family. Maybe he didn't feel like he belonged. We don't know what it was. Whatever it was, he said, I got to get out of here. What I have coming to me, I want it now. So the father makes no attempt to stop him. And he divides up the inheritance and he gives the younger son his portion. And we're told that not long after that, the son gathers up everything that he now has. And he sets off for a distant country where he squanders all of this wealth in wild living. See, now he's got the opportunity. He can be his own person. He can, he can make his own choices. I'm going to choose what I value. I'm going to make a life for myself. And he's the new rich kid in town. And as you can imagine, he's very popular. He's going to different parties every night, VIP access to the best clubs and all of the crowds that come with it. But if you're going to play, you got to pay. And eventually the money runs out. And when the money runs out, so too do all of his friends that were with him. You see, the, the success and the accolades were fleeting. The joy and the fulfillment that he had in that situation ran dry. And he finds himself alone and broke. But then we're also told that his situation gets worse because there's a severe famine in the land. And the whole country was in want. And he began to have a very great need. And so in this desperate situation with no friends, no family, no money... The only work he can find is feeding pigs. Now, if you grew up on a farm, you're thinking, well, feeding pigs, that's what you do. 5 a.m. every morning, all the sun goes up, you feed the pigs. But for the Jewish audience that Jesus is speaking to, pigs were unclean animals. And so the idea that you were a servant to a pig was deeply offensive. But that's what he found work to do, this lowly job. And so wallowing in the filth among pigs, he hits rock bottom. And it's there that he hatches a new plan. He says, I know what I'll do. I will go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but if you would just make me one of your hired servants, you know, then, then, then I'd have food and I'd have a roof over my head and, and I might have a couple of coins in my pocket. And he's ready to go home. He's going to apologize to his father. And he realizes that in the process, though, he's going to have to forfeit any rights that he has as an heir. But here's the question. Has anything changed? When you look at his response, when you, when you follow the story to this point, has anything really changed? Is there any evidence that he values the father? Or is he looking for more gifts? In this case, does he really want a relationship with the father or just food in his belly and a roof over his head? You see, part of the reason Jesus told the story was to vividly illustrate the bankruptcy of the life from God posture and to challenge people to consider, do they value the father's gifts more than the father? But Jesus also told this story to illustrate vividly God's character and God's love for his children. Because we go back to the story as the son comes home. He's been rehearsing the whole way home what he's going to say when he sees his dad. But his dad sees him coming up over the hill. And in an instant, he knows, that's my son. 
and overwhelmed with joy, he runs out to greet him and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And the son starts saying the speech that he's been rehearsing, Father, I've sinned against you, but his dad cuts him off and he calls the servants and he says, bring the best robe. Because everyone must know that this son of mine has distinction. Put a ring on his finger because this son of mine has authority in my land. Put sandals on his feet because only a servant would walk around barefoot. This guy's family. And fire up the kitchen because we are going to feast. We're going to celebrate. For the son of mine who was once dead is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. You see, when the son looks at the father, he may have seen him as a means to an end. He may have seen the father as a way to receive what he desired. But when the father looks at the son, he sees his child. He sees one created in his image. He sees one that he has always deeply loved. Your heavenly father loves you in the same manner and delights in giving you gifts and very good things. But he longs for you to value him above any blessing that we may receive. He longs for us to have a life with him rather than just a life from him. You see, God knows your need. He knows your challenges, whether those be things at home or or, or in business or, or things that might happen within the church. He knows them and he cares about them. And and I know the feeling. I know the feeling of the anxiety, of the fear that comes up when we start playing the what-if game in our minds. What if there's not enough money? What if there's not enough for groceries? What if this person leaves the relationship? I know what it's like to play that game. I know what it's like to have those fears alleviated as well. But then when we have such a a depth of fear and anxiety about what we're not going to have, when we receive it, all of a sudden what we received that alleviates our fear gets elevated. We long for it so much. And now we have it. And my fear is gone. And we highly value that item, that situation, that person that alleviated our fears. But in so doing... We can forget the source, the source of where that came from, the giver of where that came from. And so when I find myself starting to slip into that frame of mind, I remind myself of the words of Jesus to his followers. When he said these beautiful words, he said, look at the birds of the sky. They they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have barns that they store worms up in or seed up in, and yet your father loves them and feeds them. Look at the flowers of the field, dressed in all of their splendor. They don't labor. They don't spin. Yet not even Solomon was dressed. In all of Solomon's splendor, not even he was dressed as beautifully as these. Then he asked them the question, are you not more valuable than the birds of the sky? Are you not more valuable than the flowers of the field who are here today and then simply gone tomorrow? You see, God knows and desires to meet the needs in our lives. And when he does, and even if he doesn't, we have reason to return all thanks back to him for his presence in our lives. You see, if our relationship is simply based upon the gifts that we receive, it falls short of everything that he has in store for us in this life and the next. For out of his love for you, out of his desire to be with you, He gave us something that can never be taken away. 
He gave us something that never shifts and changes like shadows. He gave us the greatest gift and the greatest blessing in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, all of us at some point in our lives have been like that younger son where we've, we've wronged the father. We decide we want to go do it our own way. We, we want the gifts, we want the things that come, the good stuff that comes from him, but we don't want the relationship. And when we adopt that posture, we wander away and we go astray. It might work in our lives for a while, but we're not created to live apart from the Father. That's not how we were created. And we eventually reach a point where all we can do is say, is this all there is to life? Is this all there is? And when that emptiness and that yearning, that hunger builds, we search to fill it with things. But the things of this world don't fill it. That void that exists within us. In 1 John 4, you find these words. Where it says, this is love. Not that we love God. We tend to follow that rebellious nature. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, it's not a matter of more things. It's not a matter of more accolades. The one thing we ultimately need is to be set free. We don't need to collect more things. We need to be set free from one thing, from sin and separation from the Father. And there's nothing in this world that will do that. There's nothing we can achieve of ourselves that will do that. There are no goods. There are no deeds. There are no other philosophies. There are no human efforts that achieve that. Only accepting the forgiveness of the Son, Jesus Christ, brings us into relationship with the Father so that we can live through him, so that we could be in relationship with the Father through the Son. And that is the most valuable thing you'll ever find in your life. That is worth saying thank you for on Thanksgiving Sunday. And we have the opportunity to do that now as we head towards a time of communion. We have the opportunity to say thank you, to remember and to reaffirm our commitment to Jesus who was fully committed in giving his life to atone for our sins. So as we consider that, I want to invite the servers if they would come and join me at the table.